At American University, we don't just hope for change, we create it. We don't just dream of a better world, we make it a reality. With a graduate degree from AU, you'll access expert faculty and connections throughout DC to develop skills and experience to turn your passion into purpose. And that purpose can make all the difference in your career. Discover the difference a degree makes at American.edu slash gradschool. Hello, and welcome to the TIFO Football Podcast. I am Joe Devine, and today I'm joined by Seb Stafford-Bloor. Hello, Joe. Hello, how's it going? It's going very, very well. <clears throat> it's New Year's Eve. Sort of is. It is for people listening on the day of release. I tell you what, just before we started recording, I um, I spilled coffee on my face. So is there any evidence of that now? <laughs> I just don't want to become like some awful so. man. I just... <laughs> I don't think so, but you always look a bit stained, you know. I've had a couple of days of football travel. If you didn't look like you had coffee on your face after that, something would have gone wrong. Maybe it would have been better just, you know, to make it seem like that was a sort of a, you know, that my appearance was the result of some kind of accident. Right, or a birth. Not like an industrial accident, but like the accident, a kind of a spilled coffee on yourself kind of accident. An accident with tractors. Yeah. No, I mean... Hey, listen, today's episode, uh, we are going to go over a couple of videos that we've made recently, namely uh, Leicester's defence, Mourinho's Tottenham, and also we're going to talk about VAR. Uh, Seb and I spoke about that before the season began um, to explain the system as best we could, and we're going to revisit it now to discuss what's happened so far and how boring that is. And also, we're going to talk about the last video we did in collaboration with The Athletic, which was uh, about Adam Craft and signings of the decade. We're going to talk about those, uh, talk about what our signings of the decade might be, and also just talk about the decade, and then other stuff about the decade, and then we're going to say uh, about the decade, um, what our favourite videos of the decade were. We're probably going to cut <coughs> a few of those decades. I'm going to keep I'm going to add a few of those out. And, uh, you know, anyway, it's like you're it's, selling it's, a product. It's about the decade. Well, it's the beginning. I'm trying to get them to stick around and listen to everything that's just happened over the last decade. We're Again, not really going to do much of that, but there will be discussion <laughs> of the decade throughout the rest of the podcast. Anyway, uh, before we get started, I'd love to say that we are delighted to be supported by, mm, I'd probably say, the greatest football writing adventure of the decade. The Athletic. Uh, is that fair to say? Uh, the best place to read about football. It's the most exciting for me, and I would imagine many of you listening. Anyway, you can visit theathletic.co.uk forward slash TIFO, get a seven-day free trial, and get 50% off an annual subscription. Do you know how much that works out to be per day, Seb? I feel like I do, because we've done this bit a few times, but it's something like 20p or something. It's 8p. It's 8p. It's just 8p. Um, I'm gonna, I'll just put the 8p uh, day song in there. That's a good song. Have you listened to that one yet? I, I haven't. No, uh, it's, it's good. You should listen to the episode. Mm. Um, anyway, thanks to the Athletic, and uh, we will start now. Leicester's defence is the first place we're starting at. Um, we released this video a week or two ago now, written, <coughs> excuse me, written by Alex Stewart, uh, who it's fair to say was quite taken with uh, the way that Leicester have been playing. Uh, would you give a very short and brief summary of some of the things that he was saying and then uh, take it into where you, you want to take it to? Because I know you're saying that perhaps 
when they face top six opponents, these mm-hmm. things may change slightly. We've just seen that uh, past weekend with Manchester City. Yes, yeah, so um, <coughs> Alex is right to be taken with them. They're, they're very, very impressive. And uh, prior to all the weekend, they were the owners of the, the best defensive record in, in the Premier League. Um, I think a couple of the themes that he, he picked out were particularly interesting. So um, the way they counterattack is the obvious one. Um, the way um, Brendan Rodgers is using Jamie Vardy in a slightly more narrow way. and uh, That guy. What, Alex Stewart or Jamie Vardy? Jamie Vardy. Okay. That yeah. goal he scored against City at the weekend. Do you remember a, a Ruud van Nistelrooy goal at uh, Highbury in about 2003? No. Yeah. Was it the same goal? Very, very similar in the sense that... Um, uh, so... Uh, Jamie Vardy picks up a Harvey Barnes pass in sort of a, a shallow position just inside the city half and he races into the box and like Van Nistelrooy 15, 16 years earlier it looks like he takes one too many touches yeah. um, and it looks like he's denied himself a, 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 a scoring angle um, but the finish he produces just brilliant as Van Nistelrooy's was I would uh, say of Jamie Vardy at the moment I can't think of another player who screams more whenever he gets the ball I'm going to score I'm going to score now and you watch him and you're just so confident <coughs> I'm so sorry I'm going to so I, I think oh, I'm going to guess on what you're about to say um, and I think one of the things I was, I was at um, I was at Leicester's game on Saturday night um, at Manchester City and I one of the interesting things about Vardy is that um, he plays within a, uh, a a very sort of narrow parameter Um because he does the same things. He scores goals in the same way, um, you know, season in and season out. And also he relies on a very narrow set of attributes. So, you know, his pace, uh, his ability to run at defenders, he doesn't have a lot of tricks. So he isn't beating players with any sort of, any technical anything. He really just knocks the ball into space and runs after it. He's blazing past them. Yeah, he is. And what's really, really interesting is still, you know, this is, I think it's his fifth season in the Premier League and still nobody has an answer to that. On Saturday night, he scored his, his excellent goal, but also a couple of minutes later, Harvey Barnes produces arguably the pass of the game uh, you know, to carve the ball pretty much into the same position as he did for the goal. And Vardy did exactly the same thing. Roasted a couple of defenders. Uh, neither Fernandinho or Nicolas Otamendi really knew what to do with him. And he, he didn't end up scoring. He just, he, he, he ripped a shot just over Edison's crossbar. But, um, same principle. And I think what, what's interesting is, is Rogers has worked that out and he, he knows this is how you use Vardy. Until someone comes up with a way of nullifying this as a tactic, we're going to just keep doing it. Um, and so it's interesting. One of the things that Alex picks out in his, um, uh, in his video, in his script, was that that is what Leicester try and do. Almost every time they retrieve the ball is the first look is for where Vardy is and where the space is. And if a player hasn't, if the player recovering the ball hasn't got the pass to put him into that situation, then it's to someone that does. Ideally, a Barnes and Madison, either of the fullbacks actually, because Chilwell's um, Chilwell's delivery is very very good. Pereira is a, good, a very very good footballer. Even 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 holding players, someone like Ndidi is a you know nominally a uh, restricting footballer. But he's also technically a very good one too. So also, if, if there's a lot of space and you're just knocking the ball into it for Vardy to chase, you don't. I mean, uh, as I said, Leicester have a lot of great passes of the ball. Mm-hmm. You don't actually need to be that technically gifted to put a good ball in for Vardy. No, you don't. Particularly if the opposition are playing such a high line. No, because the margin of error is <laughs> is is actually quite big. Yeah, you know, because if you're, as particularly if you're playing against a um, theoretically, if you're playing away from home, then 
generally, with a few exceptions, most of those teams will play with quite a high defensive line. It's quite rare to see a, a side um, sit deep in their own half in their own stadium. So for someone like Vardy, as long as he keeps himself on side, that generally means that you've got not necessarily big amounts of space um, in the centre of the pitch, but certainly down in the channels. Um, one of the things that kind of... Um, one of the other things that Alex pointed out was um, how whilst Rogers plays with really a, I suppose you describe Leicester as a four-one-four-one um, with a with Indeedy as that one sitting behind and uh, sitting in front and screening that defence, but then the the four sort of artisans, the ball players in front of him, collapsing in to sort of provide the stability and and the protection. Now, one of the things that disappointed me on, on Saturday was that they didn't really do that. It was chaos uh, and. The first time, I mean, we, we've been impressed by Leicester for quite a long time. First time I had doubts was right at the beginning of the season when they went to Stamford Bridge, when they were bad. They just, they invited Chelsea into the game. They didn't really start playing until about an hour into it. And as a result, they really wasted the opportunity to win against a side. Frank Lampard's Chelsea have improved, except that. But back then they were very embryonic they lost 4-0 to Manchester United. They lost 4-0 to Manchester United. And also, if you look at some of the other results, they've lost at home to West Ham and Bournemouth. Yeah. Like, good teams don't do that. Um, so they were vulnerable. And I think Leicester are better. And Chelsea, that day at least, were there for the taking. Um, unfortunately, Leicester have this thing whereby when they go into a specific type of contest, their system seems to disintegrate. So an interesting exercise for anyone who hasn't seen Alex's video would be to rewatch it now and take note of everything he says, which is absolutely correct, but then to compare it to what happened on Saturday night. So, for instance, not just the goals that City, um, that City scored, Manchester City scored, but some of the chances they conceded and some of the ways in which those chances were created. So I, I would look at, for instance, um, the amount of space Kevin De Bruyne had throughout the game. I mean, if you think about what De Bruyne is, probably, I know it's arguable, but I, for me, uh, probably the best and most dangerous attacking midfielder in the country, who is the player in the days prior to that kind of game that you would plan to take away? Who is the one that you would guard against? It's probably De Bruyne. City, it's a little bit of a pick your poison. They're a, they're a sort of murderer's row type of football team. I accept that. But De Bruyne is the one who you say, right, well, if you're going to beat us, you're going to have to beat somebody else. It's like Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls back in the day. Um, and yet, Leicester didn't do that. And they didn't do that because their midfield players, um, specifically Madison, I say, I, I know it's a, he's, a, he's a bit of an easy target, but you don't see those players um, uh, digging in is a bit of a trite, um, trite phrase, but it, that's still appropriate. You don't see the kind of the, um, you don't see them doing the uglier parts of the game in those kind of matches. And it's odd. I mean, I don't really like to kind of dismiss things or, or describe them as, as sort of, intangibles within games because that's a little bit of a cop-out. It's a way of explaining something without actually explaining it. Um, but it seems to be fundamentally a mentality issue. All the things that Leicester do well vanish when they play against good sides. Even, and it, it's not even good sides, actually. It's big teams. Manchester United <laughs> are nobody's idea of a good side. And yet Leicester were dreadful at Old Trafford when they played. Manchester City won you know, what looked like at the time a season-changing game, 1-0 with a penalty. You know, but Leicester made no impression on that game whatsoever. Um, ditto at Stamford Bridge. And apart from, you know, those those good first-half moments um, at the Etihad and one late and one chance for Harvey Barnes in the second, which he actually got injured as a result of, they were, they, they did themselves a big disservice. How many of their um, first team is still 
around from the 2016 champion season because I remember Alex says at the beginning of the video mm. that the defence is completely changed. The other, other than Casper Schmeichel, yes. Um, so We have Vardy, obviously. Vardy, obviously, and Schmeichel. And, and I mean, there are still players like Mark Albrighton at the club um, and uh, Damari Gray is at the club. But I, I, first of all, like, Damari Gray was not a pivotal player in the championship winning side and Albrighton is not a pivotal player now. So... Yeah. So it could, you know, I suppose one of the things that people say often about championship winning teams is that the menta- they have a championship mentality in that they've done this for the last few seasons. They know how it works. They know about mm-hmm. the grind when you get to this stage of the season. That was one of the miraculous things about Leicester winning the Premier League when they did yeah. was because none of their players had, had achieved that before. So it was, you know, it was an, it was an incredible feat of uh, solidarity to, 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 to maintain that towards the end of the season. Um, it's an interesting idea that there there is a there is a, a different mentality which comes across them. You would have thought, as you say, no one considers Manchester United a good club at the moment, good or a team. good team. Sorry, yeah, yeah. but but they're of course a big club. Mm-hmm. How 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 does that manifest? Do you think? I mean, we're speculating, but how does that manifest in the mind of a Leicester City player? I mean, how it manifests in the mind is a very difficult question to answer. What I what I noticed, sort of a few observations that we're going to overanalyze, is that in the opening in the opening minutes of that game, what you saw was not um, a Leicester team that immediately straight onto the pitch and wanted to play as they have been instructed to do. I mean, it was the first ten minutes, fifteen minutes of that game was full of Leicester players doing sort of calm down gestures to each other. They wanted the ball. They just wanted to have the ball, not necessarily do anything with it. They wanted to settle into the game. And almost, I don't know if this is the right way of describing it, but they almost, it, it seems as if they wanted to feel like they belonged before they started playing. They wanted to dip their toe into the bath and go slowly in. A little bit. It was like they had, they brought a, an inferiority into the game and they were waiting for it to vanish um, before uh, starting to play as we know they can. It was interesting also that, um, yes, wonderful pass from, from, from Harvey Barnes, but Vardy provided that moment. Vardy provided the moment where you think, right, we've got one the lead here. Now, Leicester want really, with the, with the players at their disposal, to play on the counter-attack in that situation. Um, it was set up perfectly for them. And you could hear the stadium become more anxious. Vardy scored and it, you know, the Etihad has become one of those places where people buy tickets and they expect to win. You know, and when it doesn't happen, it's not that they boo or, you know, get upset. It's that just they don't really know how to react sometimes. Not everyone. There's a lot of people there that aren't like that, but... That became the mood. And then Vardy had his second chance and you could hear the, the anxiety rippling up the tears again um, around the press box because that's, a, that's sort of bedded into the fans that the Etihad. Um, and it was, it was strange. And so you think this is a situation where Leicester can capitalise and they didn't have the mentality to do that. And that's a... Mentality is something we speak about a lot and probably a bit too much. Um, again, one of those sort of soft justifications for things. But that's, that's still how it felt. Um, and yeah, it was just it was so disappointing. Well, talk to me about their. I mean, they're going to finish in the top four, right? For me, yes, I think you so. would have thought so, yes. particularly given how inconsistent Tottenham and Manchester United well, seem to be. Here's the, the thing, Joe. I think I think Leicester are comfortably the second best team in the country. I think on paper Manchester City are because of the resources, but I think City are disengaged. I think it's it's, it's an open secret that um that that Pep Guardiola is prioritising the Champions League. I think that attitude, if it's not shared by the players, has bled into their application too. Um, so I, I, yes, of, of course, and I, I fully expect as soon as they face a run of games where I haven't got the fixture list in front of me, but if they had five teams from outside um, the 
the, the, the top four to play next, I expect they'd win all of them. So they could finish second. They could finish second. I, 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 I would, I'd be amazed if they didn't finish in the top four. It's a quite incredible achievement, really, isn't it? And I remember... Um I'm blanking on the name on the name of their owner who sadly passed away. Yeah, Vishai. Yeah, Vishai. Yes, Vishai Srivadhanaprabha. Mm-hmm. But he he said when he bought Leicester that over the next five to ten years, I want to turn Leicester into a top four Champions League football yeah. side. When he said that, it was absurd. People mocked him for it. It was ridiculous. Yeah. And obviously, we you know we to try and understand the different contributing factors that have gone into this situation not only from Leicester also the uh, poor performances of other clubs as well not that I want to take it away from them but it's relevant though you can't it is relevant it's stunning that 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 is the case you don't often find owners coming into clubs who are in the position that Leicester were in and saying outlandish things like that Um, maybe it's you know a little bit of confirmation bias but no I think it's very fair it's I, it's a stunning achievement isn't it it is also I, I, I think um, I think we shouldn't portray oh I know what I've just said about other teams underperforming but I think one thing that's really important to recognise is just how astute their appointment of Rodgers was because um, as we've seen in the last couple of weeks in the Premier League there are a lot of clubs that just pick a manager <laughs> they want a guy they've seen what he's achieved I would say that you know I'd say that Everton have just done that with Carlo Ancelotti happy to be proved wrong but I'd say what they've done is they've thought right let's go and find the most decorated coach on the market and point him what Leicester did was they recognized what they had they recognized the demographics within their squad which was a couple of veteran players but mainly this this sort of this core group of young pliable footballers and they found someone who okay is known to coach an attractive form of the game and had a lot of well some success at Liverpool but they also found someone that historically has worked really well with young players. Like Brendan Rodgers has a little bit of a bad reputation in England because people people poke fun at his personality. And that's understandable. He's had to adjust that a little bit. He's wound it in a little bit. Um, maybe we'll talk about that in a, in, you know, uh, in a few minutes. But His Brentisms. He's, he's, wound, it, he's <laughs> wound that in. He is, I was in one of his press conferences, obviously, the weekend, and he's trying very hard not to be that character. But what Leicester did is say, look, I... We have a, a Tielemans, we have a Madison, we have an Ndidi, we have a Chilwell, we have players, and we have a Harvey Barnes. Now, they react well to that kind of person. Brennan Rogers is known to be positive. He extracts a lot out of young players. That's what he did at Liverpool. If you think about what Raheem Sterling became under him at Liverpool, for instance. So this is really no surprise. And so they, they deserve a great deal of credit for, for identifying a potential synergy and then getting it to work and manifest in this form. So in a way, yeah, they are a beneficiary of uh, teams like Arsenal, Tottenham, Manchester City being far, uh, Manchester United, sorry, being far less than what they should be and underperforming pretty dramatically. But at the same time, they are also, this is hard earned success as well. And, um, you know, it's, uh, it's a lot of, a lot of decisions have been got right. And unfortunately in football, despite all the money, despite all the people employed to get decisions right, that's quite an unusual thing to say. Hopefully Leicester can serve as an example to everyone else then. I hope so. I don't expect they will do. It will still be sort of people throwing money at the wall and hoping a bit of it sticks. Mm. But, you know. Jose Mourinho is a Tottenham manager now. We've talked about this several times, but since then, you've seen Tottenham live a couple of times. You've been to the press conferences. Mm. There's been a couple of negative results. How's it all going? It's a very... I'm a Tottenham fan, so I don't have my 
writer's hat on with this. It's a very cold sort of experience. Um, I was at Wolverhampton, I was at Molyneux for the, the Tottenham's win over Wolves, and that was a very literally cold experience. That was a terrible day out. Um, and they won that game despite being pretty much dreadful for most of it and being torn apart by Adam Atrore. Um And I was at White Hart Lane or the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium uh, on... Is that uh, what it's called now? Yeah. The Tottenham Hotspur it's Stadium. It's a waiting and naming rights deal. So it will be With something who? else. Do we know? We don't know yet, but it okay. will be, um, I'm sure it will be the, the, the Starbucks Stadium. Dome. In Starbucks Dome. The Force in the in the future. Hoover. The Hoover Arena. Yeah. The, oh, that the, would be good, yeah, wouldn't it? The Hoover Arena? Uh, the Amazon Bowl. I don't, yeah. know, I don't know. Um and it was as bad a Tottenham performance as I've seen for a really long time. Um there's a couple of uh, I I've I haven't we haven't done this with me uh, yet, but I've obviously you know paid attention to the kind of to what to what we've done as a What are you saying? That's a very confusing sentence. Well, because, you haven't been on the podcast for to talk about Tottenham. No, because I, I listened. I listened to the podcast obviously with um, with Jack and Charlie. Yeah, um, and a lot of the things that they said about how this came about were absolutely right. And uh, also, um, before I came in this morning, I um, watched Alex's video about how Spurs have changed under Mourinho, and I agree with all of it. Like, yeah. you know, there's some very astute points. All I would say is, as a fan, it's a slightly different experience. Um, so uh, I wrote an article for Football Three Six Five about this when when it happened, and my point then was that when Jose Mourinho comes to your club, it stops being about your club. It's about him. Now, there's a... Um, uh, I don't know whether they're in short supply at the moment because of what happened against Chelsea, but I would say that um, these are people who are, who are happy to be satiated, who are happy to tolerate Mourinho and his Mourinho-isms for the sake of a League Cup or an FA Cup. Now, my point would be that winning with Jose Mourinho is... Um, is is diluted by the fact that that success becomes his possession and a tool by which his career is rejuvenated. Now, as a Tottenham fan, that's quite a compromise to have to make because... Can I just add something to that? Of course you can. I would add that a victory, a trophy for a Mourinho football club is no longer even just for him. It's for the increasing number of people who have to argue that he's still a good football coach at the top of his game by using examples of League Cups that he's won. Yeah. I, I completely you know agree. Yeah, well, I completely Your trophy agree. becomes a kind of sort of CV footnote. It's like it's like when um, when he won the the Europa League with with um, with Manchester United when they beat Ajax in that final. He did this bizarre little victory dance about how he'd nullified Ajax's his threats. And he thought. You're the Manchester United coach. You are spending two hundred million pounds, two hundred fifty million pounds every single summer, and they're all and you're fifteen. Losing it over, um, you know. You, you, but back then, players like uh, Matthias Delict and Frankie De Jong, they were they were so young. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they, they, honestly, they were they were seventeen, eighteen years Abs- old. Absolutely, you know. You're looking at sort of you, you know, looking at a team that were relying on Casper Dolberg's goals, and mm. a couple of years later, Dolberg's playing for Nice. You're not playing for Real Madrid or Barcelona. So it's an interesting one, um, but. It's also, there are other aspects of it which concern me. Um, the football is incredibly negative. So the, the compromise that you're, the compensation that you're supposed to receive for, um, for Mourinho coaching a football team is that you, you acquire this incredibly pragmatic side that wins regardless. It's always, it has a solution for everything because he's such a brilliant mind and, and when there's a problem in a game, he knows how to solve it. And I sat there at... Um, at, uh, I'm going to call it Wahai Lane, I just can't, it's a habit. Um, so hopefully Daniel Levy won't sue us. Um, but 
I sat there thinking, right, from, from minute 10 onwards, even before Williams scores, what was it, an excellent goal, you still saw the problems in midfield. You saw how uh, Tottenham was struggling to exert any sort of press on Lampard's adapted back three slash back five. Um, you saw how Eric Dyer was struggling. You saw how Lucas Moura was having no effect on the game whatsoever. And everybody in the stadium, whether they are a um, uh, an Alex Stewart tactical mind type or just uh, an average punter, knew you need someone that can pass a football in the middle of the, in the middle of the pitch. Um, whether that's side and on Dembele or an Eriksson, whatever you you cannot. This game is not going to go well if it if it carries on in this, in this form. Um, and there was no change. There was no early change. Even at halftime, when Eriksson comes onto the pitch, he comes on at the expense of Eric Dias. So you still have the same problem. As you're thinking, right? So I've still got the negative football. I've still got the fullbacks and the centre halves going along at every opportunity. I've still got the slow pace of the football. And yet I'm not being compensated with anything which looks even remotely encouraging. Now, after the fact, um, there are a few things about that game which, you know, are slightly, uh, you know, um, transcend anything to do with Jose Mourinho. Of course, the abuse Antonio Rudiger suffered and um, Son Heung-Ming's red card changed the game as a contest. But that shouldn't disguise from the fact that the game was lost long before that happened. The game was lost as soon as the second goal went in because even at 1-0 down, Tottenham weren't scoring. I mean... They had a couple of half chances, maybe in the first half, if you're being generous, but they produce nothing against a side who realistically um, are still very inexperienced against a coach who has a season and a bit's worth of experience. Totally beatable, basically. Yeah. And and you know what? Can I, can you know I, what? Even, in, even in the aftermath, Lampard was extremely impressive. He's a very intelligent guy, <laughs> probably more so than people realise. He's, he's very, very smart. Um, he got an a, a level in one of those things. I used to do a pub quiz with him. Um, with Frank Lampard? Not with him in my team. He used to come to a, um, he used to sporadically come to a pub quiz, which um, me and uh, uh, the woman that I was seeing at the time used to used to go to. Um, uh -huh. Very long time ago. So it sort of been about 10 years ago. Um, and, you know, people used to laugh at him, you know, because, oh, you know, the footballer coming to the pub quiz. Because it was, it was quite a challenging pub quiz. He was always, he always did very, very well. He's a very smart guy. But the point is, is that after the game, Mourinho defaults to his slightly snide personality where he's, he, he accused Lampard of just, of cloning Antonio Conte's system and using that as a sort of comfort blanket, which Lampard didn't like, tweaked him a little bit and he started talking about, well, you know, look at the, look at the players there. How many of them actually played for Conte? Um, and so the, the Mourinho mask started to slip a little bit. Um, and it's just like, it was just one of those days where you think, it was coloured by the abuse suffered by Rudiger because that's, as a fan of Tottenham, that was just an awful thing to 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 witness. To be in a stadium when that was happening, it was you just wanted to cringe into your seat. It was, I mean, it's just inexcusable. Um, but you also, you know, on reflection, even just from a footballing perspective, it's just a very discouraging day. It's just a. It was another. It was another example to be used by people who think that Mourinho, um, as an ideologue, as a high priest of um, footballing, um, not intelligentsia, but sort of footballing theory, is nowhere close to being at the at the, at the top of the um, top of the class. Did it? Did it feel like a performance? Obviously, you lost. Did it feel like a performance towards the end? I mean, you describe it. So it's taking a long time to get this point out. You've described it to me 
like a performance at the end of a Mourinho cycle rather than at the beginning of one where there's still the opportunity that fans afford Mourinho to sort of, you know, to take his time, make his changes, you know, he needs a transfer window, whatever, mm-hmm. whatever. Um, before those performances kind of continue and the response to them is just, right, well, this is... No, I, I don't think I would say... I, I would start using the, the end of cycle um, description or, or any of those terms because that usually comes replete with a few other things, you know, f- uh, yeah, some, some sort of social issues. Uh, I would... Why it bothered me is because um, uh, I was in his press conference uh, at Molyneux and he talked about how happy he was that Tottenham were out of the League Cup because it meant that he could have five straight days on the training ground. And so you think, I left feeling encouraged. I thought, right, well, that's that's a bad performance. They got lucky. They've got a very fortunate late goal. So they've won. Brilliant. And so he presented it as this kind of, right, well, I'm, I'm going to go and tighten some bolts and, you know, hammer in some loose nails. And, you know, and, and in, in five days' time, yeah. you're going to see something which isn't necessarily perfect because nobody could expect that at the moment. He hasn't been there long enough for that expectation to exist. But it's the blueprint for the revolution. What, does it make sense? Like, can you, even if you don't like the style of football, does it make sense? Can you see the aims and the logic behind it? Can you see what a team is trying to do? And after five days on training ground with players that, you know, um, it was a regression. And it was a, a regression exposed by what is a novice of a head coach. And that was... It's very difficult to take as a Tottenham fan, and it's very difficult if you're if you're being encouraged to um, to leave your issues, your past issues, the Jose Mourinho aside. It's very difficult to do that if then you throw in one of those um, people who say, "Oh, he's only been there for a while." Yeah, that is absolutely uh, for, for a short time, absolutely true. But that doesn't mean that you get to you have to forget the previous fifteen years of what Jose Mourinho stood for in the European game because that is his identity. You cannot do that. You, it is, you do not get. Um, you get, you do not get a, a, sort of a clean slate every time you walk into a new club. Um, in the same way that Guardiola doesn't, people haven't forgotten that he failed to win the European Cup at, at Bayern Munich. Um, they haven't forgotten, um, you know, prior to this summer, they didn't forget that Jurgen Klopp had uh, had lost European Cup finals or that you know his British Dortmund side fell off a cliff immediately after their apex. It doesn't work like that. I tell you what, the way I like to think about Mourinho is a. Uh, in- is as a manager who's been around for a long time now. I mean, when did he take over at Porto? Oof. Uh, 2002. 2002. Let me look it up. Let's say, okay, we're basically, we're verging on 20 years uh, as a top-level professional football manager. Uh, Now, even, and let's consider him, forget about football for a second, let's just consider him as the best, uh, or, you know, there or thereabouts at something. It, it, 2002 uh, the best at something right mm-hmm. like Bob Dylan with songwriting mm-hmm. let's say Bob Dylan uh, is considered you know the greatest songwriter of all time in reality Bob Dylan wrote incredible songs for about 10 years and he's got some bangers either side of those you know in recent years hey he still sometimes comes out with a, a real rock and roll classic and I love it don't get me wrong I love it Bob but he really only was attached, plugged into the fucking universe. Hell, you know? well, what is your favourite Dylan single, not album? Oh. I feel like you can judge somebody on that. It's a very um, revealing comment. That's a little TIFO interlude. That's a, it's a very hard one to answer, though. Isis. I love Desolation Row. Depends which version of Desolation Row you hear, though. Because okay. there are so many bootlegs out there. Right. 
But wonderful song, an amazing bit of songwriting. I absolutely. But, that, uh, that whole, I, if I, you that, said that, album, that album. Yeah, right. Okay. Oh, anyway, the point Don't is. Make that noise again. Yeah, that was a weird noise. <laughs> that was a weird noise. But that album, uh, and the, you know, subsequent before the ten-year period where he's where he's 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 plugged into the universe. He's riding along the ethereal, you know, wave of life. It's, and it's sick boy's theory of life, right? From train spotting, right? You have it. And then you lose it. And then you lose it. But it also, they all say as well, the ones that aren't massive uh, egoists, they all say that it's not them, that it's sort of coming through them and they don't really know what's happening. I mean, the reality is it is their subconscious jumbling stuff up and then spewing it out. But they don't really feel like they, they are in charge of the process. And then when it stops coming, it's like, you know, it's just stopped. It's just, you've, you've stopped being the tool through which this amazing feat of creativity has occurred. Jose Mourinho has been a football manager for 18 years now, a top-level football manager for 18 years. Let's say uh, from 2002 to 2012, he was maybe at the top of his game. And now, obviously, he's going to have those occasional hits. They're going to be there. We're going we're gonna to click along from time to time. We're going to enjoy it because we're also a bit nostalgic. But it's never the same as it was. And anyone who says it's the same is a liar. And there are very few people who, who, you know, David Bowie maybe being one of them, who can just consistently That's a keep very good up. Shout. You get David Bowie, Alex Ferguson. There's really not that many people, whatever they're doing, who are doing it to the same highest possible standard their entire career. Do you know what's interesting about Ferguson is that you're absolutely right. It's a perfect example. But what people miss about Ferguson is his thinking changed. Like, it wasn't Ferguson doing the same thing for all that time. It was the way he thought about the game adjusted. So he would occasionally have a season where you thought, this is the end for United. And then within a, within about 12 months, he would sign a different type of player. He would, one of the tells actually was he would appoint a different kind of assistant manager. So if you think about the the, the sort of the, the Millensteins, um, the Carlos Quiroz's, um, uh, Steve McLaren, he, 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 was, he was open to adjusting his thinking. Now... I was having a conversation with something the other day, journalist, and we were saying that um, that the way he he reacts to players has changed. So in the beginning, Mourinho had this hold on footballers, and you think of when you think of that, you think of players like Didier Drogba and John Terry and Frank Lampard and Peter Cech and you know Ricardo Carvalho. Now, um, I think there's something in the idea that today's 23 year old footballer is a different beast to what he was 15 years ago. I think the way they react to criticism is different. Um, financially, I think it's much for muchness. They are a bit wealthier, but I, you know, they're still separated by society and from society in pretty much the same way. Um, I think there is a, um, something, to, something to be written about how he deals with the millennial type and how he extracts potential from that kind of personality. I'm not a smart enough person to write that article myself. I think this came up with Jack and Charlie, actually. Okay. Towards okay. the end of the podcast, because we had a whole conversation about when millennial stops and when Gen Z starts. Yes, I, I, I mean, uh, my definition of millennial may be wrong here, um, but I'm thinking of, uh, yeah, I, you, you know what I mean by that. Yeah, term. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think we are actually millennials. Uh, well, millennial, as I've subsequently found out, is anyone born between 1985 and 1997. Okay, so I'm not actually a millennial. I'm 35. I was born in 1984. So you're, you're a Gen X. Cool. 
Yeah, pretty cool. Uh, like guess. an X-Man? I guess. X-Machina? The X makes it sound cooler than it probably is. But yeah. Anyway. Not to your So I, I think there's something in that. I think there's something in, um, yes, his methodology. And um, he's tried to compensate for that by, he has brought Zhao Sacramento to, um, uh, to, to Spurs from Lille, I think. Um, and but what was he though? What he was to me, and I don't, you know, I'm not the best placed person to say that this is true. But to me, he was always a motivator, someone who inherently understood, instinctively understood his players, who his players wanted to die for, mm-hmm. uh, and who was obviously, you know, tactically accomplished as well. But the whole thing around him was like the cult of Mourinho. It was a we package. also know cults don't last that long either, do they? No. With the exception of, you know, Christianity or <laughs> any of the really long living ones. I- I want to. I want to be careful, and and I'm. I'm not trying to say that um that uh that Mourinho, what Mourinho was, was illusory in any way at all. He was a fabulously successful coach and mm-hmm. one of the very very best of his generation. Mm-hmm. My point would simply be that he hasn't updated himself in a way that allows him to retain that primacy. Because when your thing is being down with the kids, you can't update that as you get older. Yeah, all of a sudden those kids are forty. Yeah, you know Frank Lampard is managing against him. He's not a midfielder anymore, and he's chatting shit about him. Yeah, well, Frank Lampard is actually, you know, you would say, okay, so after after a full time, um, Frank Lampard, all the Chelsea players gathered in the the corner where the the travelling supporters were, and Lampard was right in front of them. He was all over it. He was he was he, he was like watching a, it was like watching a boxer at the end of a fight. A crowd were loving it, and you, you looked also at players like Mason Mount and Tammy Abraham, the kind of the young, pliable types that you owe it to him. Right, so they they have the relationship with Lampard that Mourinho used to have with players of Lampard's generation. And they are different. So the relationship is kind of the same, but the personalities within it are different. Yeah. And that's quite interesting because I, I, we need more time with Mourinho to judge what the effect is that he has on, on, on Tottenham's individual players. Um, but that's a, I think that's a kind of, that's quite an interesting subplot. Um, yeah, in fact, this conversation that I had with Jack and Charlie in the park, you might be interested to go back and listen to yes, it if you missed it. Yeah. Um, but we then, you know, they were, they then went on to talk about him as a kind of usurper, as a sort of underdog uh, mentality guy. With him and his merry band of fellows are going to stick it to the king because fuck the man, right? And that's that's Mourinho. We talked about him as a punk character. Uh, and it's difficult to be punk when you are establishment. You, we all know if you show up to a royal party with tartan trousers on, they don't let you in. Yeah, well, he's he's now John Lydon, but during his selling butter phase. Yeah, you know, which is now, I think, still. Yeah. And mm-hmm. hey, I love butter. Quick reminder to let everyone listening know that this episode is supported by The Athletic. You can get a seven-day free trial and 50% off an annual subscription by visiting theathletic.co.uk forward slash TIFO. Also, what's new is uh, that The Athletic have released a whole bunch of football podcasts, all of which are freely available to listen to, by the way. You needn't be a subscriber, although it helps to be, because listening to the podcasts on their app is uh, it's pretty great. Anyway, I'm going to tell you about three of them now. I've told you about a bunch already, but here's three more. The first one is 1874. The Athletics' Greg Evans joins Villa fan and broadcaster Dan Bartle to bring you the definitive word on Aston Villa Football Club every single week. Subscribe for big-name interviews from inside the club, plus breaking news and opinionated comment. 
<coughs> that's my favourite kind of comment, the opinionated kind. The second is the red agenda. The Athletics James Pierce and Simon Hughes are alongside Steve Hothersall. I hope I said that right, Steve. Uh, to bring you the very best insight into Liverpool Football Club every week, plus big name guests and breaking news from the red half of Merseyside. And the third one is a pod in the tine. You know what they say about that. It's all mine. It's all mine. It's not all mine. It's freely available to listen to for you. Taylor Payne is joined by the Athletics' George Colkin and Chris Waugh to discuss the latest goings-on at St James's Park, including big-name guests and breaking news. Plus, they'll be sharing some of their favourite tales from one of England's most fascinating football clubs. There you go. There's loads more than that as well. There's like 11 or something at the moment, and they're all really interesting to listen to. Uh, Seven-day free trial, 50% off an annual subscription to read what is probably the best football writing on the internet, 8p a day, www.theathletic.co.uk forward slash TIFO. Thank you for listening, and back now to me and Seb. It, it is VAR. Oh, yeah. I'm okay. doing a robot voice because of VAR. I would have got that. Did you I it? was actually muting some little prick on Twitter, but I would, had I been paying proper wow. attention. That was really blue. Yeah. Mm, because there was intent behind it. Yeah. Who's the guy? Come on. No, no, he wasn't being offensive. I just like... Let's dox him right here, so right any, now. Anyone that, anyone that writes, I can just about tolerate LOL. I write LOL to you quite a lot in text messages. Yeah, you, that's okay. But also, like, I, I feel there's a bit more give and take to our... Our, 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 our conversation. It also means I'm actually saying lol. Yeah, and I can kind of imagine you saying it and yeah. you don't really laugh at anything because you're that's your personality. You're I'm not, the funny guy. You don't I really, don't laugh you, at other people. Well, you don't really see the humour in life. You're more of a... Uh, you're, you're, you're more of a plodder, I'd uh, say. This is horrible. Move on from me. You know, but when, when people sort of call back to predictions you've made and say lol with nine O's, I just can't stand it. What that. was your prediction? I don't even know. I just like... There's a guy sort of... I, I think I, I wrote that some uh, that um, I thought Leicester were going to do quite well at Manchester City. Oh, lol. And someone was like, lol, they lost. I was like... They did lose, though. They did, mate. Well that's, done. Not, that's, that's on you. Good for you. You. No, I, I, should, I, I, will, I will, yeah. Look, anyway. this is boring. Tell me about VAR. Because we talked about VAR at the beginning mm. of the season, and we agreed then it's complicated and a bit uh, stupid, and, you know, we're going to see how it works out. I feel like we've seen how it's worked out. And it doesn't really work consistently, does it? I feel like one of the big problems is that VR is implemented, has been implemented, even just in these four months, in several different ways without us knowing about it. I think we started the season with one version. And I think we're recording this on the 23rd of December. I think we now have a slightly different version. Yeah. And I think what, what has annoyed me um, is because I, I, came, I came away from Stockley Park quite positive. Um, I was encouraged by the version that they were presenting. I feel like the version they presented is not what we now have. What are the differences? Okay, so um, back then, which was late July, they said, right, they were very, very clear. They said, we're, we're going to, um, this is going to interfere as little as possible. They presented, they, they, their, their tenants were <laughs> um, minimal interference. We're going to use it only to correct major decisions. Um, we're also going to, we're going to emphasize the importance of communicating properly with fans in the stadiums. We want to make sure there are as few delays as possible. Now, um, 
it's all subjective, but I would say that none of those things has happened. It's not that subjective. I mean, I know what you mean by saying it's all subjective. No, but people but have different attitudes towards it. They literally changed the way that they interact with fans in the stadium because it wasn't working. Yeah. I understand, okay, maybe there's a little teething issues around it. Uh, the whole idea of only using it for major incidents in the first place was we said at the time, a terrible idea. What is a major incident? It's not going to sit down well with anybody. You either institute it all or you don't have any of it. This is The grey area yeah. is the thing that kills it. I, I tell you, what, you know what's, what's, what's been most problematic for me, Joe, is that this idea that you can have... Um, you can theoretically have a situation where a foul has taken place in the penalty box. Let's, let's say it's a penalty incident. Now, a foul takes place and everybody who has ever watched a football game can see the incident and think, well, that's a penalty. But because it doesn't meet the grade of mistake, we have to pretend it didn't happen. As the, the fundamental contradiction at the heart of VAR um, and the flaw in its theory is that you, 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 you cannot allow it to look like a shill for refereeing vanity, yeah. which at times it has done, I'm afraid. It looks like um, it's, it's the PGML, you know, it's, it's a, uh, a, a fig leaf um, for referees that make too many mistakes. I mean, I remember um, there was an incident uh, at White Hart Lane when Gerard Delafeo got fouled in the box by Jan Vertonghen. It was Watford Spurs. And it's a penalty. It's inarguably a penalty. It is, uh, there, there is no, there is no conversation which can, which can convince me otherwise. And yet, because I forget who the referee was, but it was just like, well, no, that's not, that's not a bad enough mistake. It's almost the point where, like, you know, for at that at that stage of the season, it was like for VAR's interference uh, involvement, you required a level of refereeing slapstick, yeah. almost in the kind of Graham Pole three yellow cards mold. You needed a twelfth player. You needed a twelfth player, or you know, the ball had accidentally turned into a triangle, or <laughs> you know, um, someone had added an extra penalty box in the middle of the pitch, or something. It's someone opened the wormhole. Fucking ludicrous. Yeah. Sorry, you're going to have to bleep that. But no, uh, no, no, leave it. I think we'll leave that one because it is ludicrous. And I think also is, um, I spent a lot of time in different Premier League grounds and among different crowds. So I like to think this is a fairly broad sample. But um, I've been in stadiums where uh, VAR has been used quite well and efficiently and without it really interfering and without people knowing about it. But more often than not, I, I've experienced long checks where... Everybody, both sets of fans, irrespective of what the decision is or who it might benefit or punish, are just utterly hacked off with it. Um, I was at Molyneux uh, about a month ago for Wolves against Sheffield United. Finished 1-1. I forget why, but there was a um, there was a VAR check for, um, I think, a penalty at one point. I forget who, who in which box even. Um, and both sets of fans just saying "fuck VAR" together, mm -hmm. whilst whilst the, the 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 checking screen was being displayed on the um, on the uh, on the big TV, um, the in stadium screen, and it's just like it's 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 I I I, don't, I haven't I haven't ever seen anything which has been so universally hated by everyone. It's extraordinary. It's a kind of um, Nazis. Well, in football. Oh, in football, sorry. Yeah, 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 yeah. no, yeah, Nazis yeah. weren't, yeah. I feel like we've gone to one of those. People didn't like the Nazis. They didn't, didn't <laughs> quite justifiably, no. Really um, true. But it's a it's a very strange phenomenon. Also, I want I want to point people in the direction of, um, of some of the things that Henry Winter has said and, and written about it, um, and uh, specifically about Mike Riley, 
Uh, and I agree with Henry. I, I, I think, um, I think who's this, Mike Riley. He's the, the head of, he is Mr. Referee. He's so Mr. Referee. He's the head of the PGML, PGMOL. Right. Um, Professional Games and Match Officials Limited. Um, and they are the, the, the body of referees. The Pogmole. If you like. That's yeah. quite a good short name. a clumsy little acronym, but yeah, okay. The Pogmole. The Pogmole. I mean, it's that's catchy. Good. Yeah, yeah okay. I like it. Um, and um, it's become about them. It's not about football. You know, you're the, as per the old maxim, like a good referee is one you don't notice. It's become completely opposite. It's become, it's so vain. And it's so, it's also, um, I don't like the way in which, um, I forget exactly when, I think it was about October, but very clearly there was an adjustment made to what is defined as clear and obvious. Clear as that. I don't think anyone could possibly argue about that. And yet that hasn't been communicated. They haven't said, there isn't the sort of the, the humility within the organization to say that this is a difficult process. Uh, we are, it's trial and error. People wouldn't be, you know, wouldn't have endless tolerance for that either, but it would help. Instead, it's just this sort of make-believe where, oh no, 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 no. It's just, this is just how we do it. And so people, when that happens, people don't really understand the, um, the criteria anymore. People don't have any confidence in the system. And the hatred for it grows. It has no credibility. So, well, it's a bit like I know it's not the rules, but it's a bit like going to watch a game of football and not and really understanding what the rules are. I, I don't mean, know. Uh, like I, I don't know what really constitutes handball anymore. No, nor do I. Well, I don't understand what constitutes <clears throat> like I, I see a handball, but it you know it seems like right. So, um, if uh, in deflecting a shot, the ball hit a player's knee, followed by his you know left testicle. Right. Um, and then well, there was his, the there was the Fred one. Oh, Do you remember the it. Fred one? Where there was a big discussion around it because he was he was sliding into block. Yeah, his hat, his arms were by his side. Yes, I do remember the and one. And at the last moment, he yeah. puts his arm down to break his fall. Yeah, yeah. and it which his. is I think uh, you or, yeah. or uh, I might have been Alex on the podcast described it. Wasn't me, but I know the incident. I, I, I can't yeah. remember who in which game it was. It was the Manchester City game. I can't remember. It was it was it was contentious enough to be. Uh, yes, you know, yes, big, yes. I think it was Alex then on the podcast. He described it as the most natural body position anyone could ever make. Yeah, you know, um, and there was a yeah there was a big discussion around it because not necessarily directly as as a result of VAR, but partly as a result of VAR, partly as the as a result of the changing rules around what constitutes a handball. People really don't understand. The, 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 that, that is the first consequence of it. The second is that that means that everything is up for discussion. So in a way, VAR was sold as this uh, end to the monotonous pub conversation around whether something was or wasn't a penalty, which even match of the day, to their credit, have moved away from doing over the last couple of seasons because fuck me. People you know, are it is just, so bored of it. It's so boring. It doesn't matter. You know, have your little argument about it at the time, whatever. Just move on. I tell you, VAR was sold on the basis that it would it would remove the necessity to have that conversation, and it has done the opposite of that, and it has made the conversation more confusing. And no one in the conversation has solid footing because they don't understand the rules, and it seems that the referees don't really understand the rules or are changing them as they go as it relates to VAR. So on the day that we went for our presentation, like there was, I was in a group with. Um, with a few fans, also with Nick Miller, who's been on our pod before, um, good man. And um, the people, it was it was a joint presentation between PGML, Pogmol, Pogmol. And, uh, and the Premier League, and they were so smug. 
that was so condescending because some of the fans abused that day and they used it as an opportunity to try and review every decision which has gone against them in their club's history. And that was a bit tedious. Accept that. There were questions from other fans. Um, there was a, a lady from, from Norwich there. There were a couple of people from Fulham. There were a few representatives from, I think, somewhere else. But people were, were sort of had legitimate concerns about the dynamics of it. Not, is my team going to get more penalties? But sort of, you know, how's that going to work? And how are you actually going to do that? And they were so patronising. They talked down to everybody. And it was, I don't know if it was just my group, but... The referees? They weren't referees. They were, they were administrators. Okay. Um, so there was uh, one guy from the Premier League who um, treated us as if we were sort of nine-year-old children. Uh, wonder how he's doing at the moment. Um, <laughs> and then there was another guy who was uh, nicer, but also quite smug. And you just think, looking back, it's not something I really appreciated at the time. I thought they were just... At the time I read it as a kind of, God, they've probably been through this quite a lot and they're probably bored of it. Now I look back and I think, you haven't thought about this enough. Like you, you are, this is a very Premier League-ish action. This is a kind of, we know best. This is how we'll do it. And it is just nonsense. It's just, it is the worst. I mean, and this is coming from someone who wanted it originally, a few years ago, who uh, was encouraged by what I was told over the summer and now I've seen it in practice. I probably covered, um, been in person to maybe 20, 25 games a season. I, I feel that's fair. Like, it's just chaos. So this is your halfway season uh, verdict. Bad. Absolutely. And I, I'm not, like, I'm not covering the same team. I go all around the league, um, you know, um, different parts of the country. Um, I see a few teams more than others, but generally I've, I get across all of them. Um, and uh, from a neutral's perspective, from an in-stadium perspective, awful. Absolutely awful. So would you just can it at this point? In the hole that I put an axe through it. Because... That could be the brave thing to do. You, you can't, they, they just don't know how to do it properly. Like they don't... I don't know what the, the, the error in the mechanism is, but they can't deliver it properly. The people running it and the people making decisions based off it are not being bound by any kind of consistency. Um, it hasn't been communicated to the fans properly. In the stadium, the delays are too much. The whole idea of, of trying to find... Um, uh, trying to judge offsides by the width of an armpit I can't I can't get on board with it because it just feels like we're going to a place where it's not fun anymore and that is like I know it's tribal and it's important and you know life and death and you know all that all that stuff but also football is entertainment it's fun you're supposed to be invested in it and now we're in a situation where like it feels like every goal that's scored there is somebody behind a computer screen trying to find a reason to disallow it and I hate it I absolutely hate it Right, there we go. Mm. Well, that's the TIFO verdict on VAR. Uh, anyway, next up, and lastly, uh, Adam Crafton's signings of the decade. It's a handy time for me to remind you that for a seven-day free trial and for 50% off an annual subscription, you can visit theathletic.co.uk forward slash TIFO and get all of those things that I just said. It's the best place to read about football online it truly is. And one of the articles that uh, The Athletic has released in recent weeks is Adam Crafton's uh, signings of the decade. It's quite an interesting concept. This We did something similar during the World Cup in Russia, where we tried to build a team uh, that would work as a team for, uh, with maximum, I think, one player per per team per country yeah. um, Adam Crafton's one is nice because he's he's not just done the players of the decade thing he's gone for signings of the decade he's gone for 
um, signings. I think his methodology was to go not just for obviously the best players, but for the best signings. You know, like minimal expense, maximum output, uh, maximum uh, uh, return if they are sold, um, or players that have surprised and the likes of it. And uh, the list of names that he has got it in front of me. You've got it in front of you. Will you tell me what they are? Yes. Yeah, so uh, David de Gea in goal, um, uh, centre back Harry Maguire, Virgil Van Dijk, um, Cesar Azpilicueta as a right back. Andy Robertson as a left back. Yes, please. Very um, cheap. He's got a pivot of Fernandinho and Engolo Kante in central midfield. Um, a band of three behind his forwards, behind his forward of Philip Coutinho, David Silva, Ed Mazard, and Sergio Aguero up front. Engolo Kante has got to be player of the decade, right? In the Premier League. He's phenomenal. I mean, uh, I, I, like, I, I, I still think he's underappreciated. I think that sort of, you know, you still hear people talking about, you know, he's a ball winner. Like you've you got no idea, man. Like he's, he's an incredibly complete footballer. I know he's not a great finisher, but as a as a box-to-box player, there's nothing between the two penalty boxes that he can't do. Mm. He's brilliant, absolutely brilliant. Uh, have you got some names you want to add? I mean, you misunderstood this initially, didn't you? So I thought I was being clever. Um, I, uh, I woke up this morning and, uh, yeah, um, came up with a very, not a very long list, but quite a long list of... of um, of names until I realised, of course, that the decade actually began in 2010. <laughs> hey, you know what? I'm, I'm, I'm a day away from a bit of time off. Like, I'm, I'm allowed that kind of uh-huh. blue. Well, give us the names anyway, even if they're not from the All decade, because right, okay, I like okay. the ones you read out to me already. Okay, let me get my get my, get my list out. Um, so, um, goalkeeper, my ineligible goalkeeper was Brad Friedel. Who I loved. I thought his deal to Villa was great. His he deal was to Tottenham great. was brilliant. Like, he became a bit... He started to get a little bit glued to his line by... Um, uh, it, towards the end of his career, right. um, he didn't always come for crosses, and he was, yeah, he he um, he had some bad moments, but a great goalkeeper for a very long time. Do you know that I once wrote a short film about Brad Friedel? Tell me the premise. It was called Friedel and Me. <laughs> uh, this is true, <laughs> and it was about a fan who was obsessed with Brad Friedel. <laughs> was to, the fan? To, was to, the fan you? No, it wasn't me. To quite, it was a fiction to quite an unhealthy and you know you might the implication might be or the inference might be sexual urges towards Brad Friedel and uh, I was trying I spent a long time trying to convince my housemate at the that time that should have been a Netflix series to uh, to, a, to star in it as the main character in what? Friedel and me so okay yeah in your in your in <laughs> is it I can't it's it's a short film so it's only five it was only supposed to be five or ten minutes long uh, but basically yeah the character was obsessed with Brad Friedel um, he was a little bit ashamed of it so he kind of hit it but he wore a Brad Friedel shirt which was a little bit too, too he was, small he was for only him. a little bit ashamed of it he was only a little <laughs> bit ashamed of it he would go to the games quite often he would uh, wait outside the stadium to see if Brad Friedel would come out the, the players exit you know he, once or twice he would try and shout over to him Brad Friedel would obviously be a little bit wary towards you know this is a strange relationship mm. and uh, the the main character would hire a uh, a sex worker to pretend to be Brad Friedel um and you know for 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 for, for an enjoyable uh, passionate night of um sex hey if you if you want to if you want to sponsor this podcast <laughs> i believe that uh that there are still opportunities going. It was not. It wasn't dirty. It wasn't. There was the sex wasn't in the film. It, but it was. It was about the mind of someone who was obsessed with Brad Friedel. Friedel and me. I say that sort of the real worry is about the mind of someone that constructed that. <laughs> like the character with the obsession, Brad Friedel. Look, people. People have funny 
funny things. People they, have you know, funny turns. They have strange kings. Mm. But people, people who create that kind of stuff, that's a that's a that's a different category of person. Who's next on your list? <laughs> okay, so I've got the uh, I wheeled out an old chestnut. Meet you. Did I tell you that I wrote a short film about? No, that's, I didn't. That's slightly. I, I didn't, but I loved Meet You as what well. A, what a good play! Oh what my, play. I forgot about him until you mentioned him earlier. The thing that annoys me about Meet You is people present him as a complete anomaly. Um, whereas his his career was really sabotaged by injury towards the end. He was a, he was just legitimately a really good player, mm. really fun to watch, and a, a really good attitude for the game as well. Mm. Um, you know what he and we were talking before the podcast about what our sort of defining era of football was. For, and the name that came to my mind was Gabiag Bonlhor. I remember him for some reason as being the pervasive presence in football at the time. Michu is dead center in the middle of what I would consider to be my football years, yeah. working in a pub watching that every day meet you he, he 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 was a big part of my year well mine too like meet you was meet you because of rose to prominence when i first started really writing about football like right. i did other jobs for most of my 20s but um yeah he was kind of as i he was he was he was a, a big personality within the premier league as i kind of um you know tried to try to break through um so i've got him uh, he is eligible um carl walker is not but I put him on because um, Kyle Walker. Yeah, so he's moved from Sheffield United to Tottenham. Right. No, not not supposed to City, because um, when he was signed, he was signed actually as part of a, a deal with Kyle Norton, and Norton was thought to be the bigger prospect at the time. Right. And I, uh, yeah, and Walker Walker became a phenomenal player, um, and was obviously sold for fifty million pounds. Um, so yeah, but not allowed under the under the terms of our under the terms set out by Adam. Mm-hmm. Um, all the rules of what constitutes a decade is probably yeah. a better way of putting it. I mean, that's the real thing. It's not Adam's fault. Um, I put Jean Moutinho in. Um, yeah, fair enough. I don't know who I would, I obviously wouldn't put him in to replace uh, Kante, but if you, th- if you, if you um, forget about what he is as a player and the minimal fee, but if you think about what Wolves have quickly become, um, obviously most people sort of uh, are more inclined to celebrate Ruben Neves and he's a brilliant player. I tell you, I'd, I'd probably argue that Jean Martino is um, among the very best players to ever play for Wolves. Um, you know, certainly in the current generation, like obviously if you, the, the further you go back, the the more competitive that, that list becomes. Um, but uh, Martino is just, even now, like deep into his 30s, he is just a fabulous player to watch mm. and he gives Wolves an authority and a gravitas that they wouldn't have without him. Um, and so, yeah, uh, economically, I mean, I've, I've obviously paid attention to what Adam's done with, um, you know, with finances and stuff in his list and the reasons he's used behind some of his picks. Um, Martino is up there. Um, I would put Sadio Mane in there because, and he does count because... To Southampton? No, to Liverpool. Okay. Because of how much it cost and because originally, um, I think it was... I think Brendan Rodgers... No, Brendan Rodgers declined the opportunity to sign Sadio Mane when the transfer committee, which included Michael Edwards, but wasn't led by him, recommended him when, when Mane was at Salzburg. Um, and then Mane obviously moves to Southampton and becomes... Um, sorry, my phone went off. Um, and uh, develops a reputation. But he, he only cost £30 million. Now, I want him on this list because I think about what it would cost to sign him now. And what, what, how well he has suited Klopp's football. Yeah, he is Liverpool's best attacking player. Like he's, I'm, I understand the argument for Mohamed Salah. Sadio Mane is a much better player than Mohamed Salah. He doesn't get the kind of press, maybe, but I think as a, as a, an all-round entity, as a footballer and as a spectacle, like 
there's no contest. Manny's better. Um, and I just think the whole thing is just, you know, if you, if you went onto the open market now, 150, 200 million pounds. Crikey. Yeah. Okay. You got anyone else? I do not. Should I give you mine? Yeah, I'm interested. I haven't got a team. What I've got is a new one and it's called Most Underrated Player of the Decade. So, you, so what you've done is you've just... I've changed the rules decided, completely. Yeah, right. yeah, it's because I'm in charge of the process. Okay, okay. Go on then. I think this is a good one. Yeah. It, it's also my best player of the decade, yeah. but it's also, it's the main one, it's most underrated player of the decade. If you say Wes Houlihan, I'm just going to walk not going to say Wes Houlihan. Robbie I'm going to say Robbie Brady. Because <laughs> Robbie Brady... I felt like we were beyond this. No, like, no. We, we've taught, we, we no, were listen. doing this when this was still you max it. Listen, Robbie Brady... Yeah is honestly it is is underrated by you and I'd say by most other people your face has gone so serious most other people but that player is very good he's a very good footballer great dead ball great uh, charging along the wing very strong very fast has a a good accuracy with his with his shot I'm just saying I'm just saying he's a better player than most people think he is you know I could draw a fairly straight line between your relationship with Robbie Brady and that Brad Friedel. <laughs> I could. I could. I because have thought of times about you, buying be, be, a Robbie people Brady People watching t-shirt. and listening, they don't, they, you don't know Joe, but I've known him probably, well, it's been like maybe five years now. And this has been fairly consistent. This is, this is yeah. Don't look into the camera when you do that. <laughs> nobody wins. Listen, I just love that guy. I know that you do. I, I think he doesn't get enough credit. And I'd love do. to hear you credit him. I think he's a good player. But really, that that's your most underrated player ever because you've taken the decade. Of the out decade. Of it. Okay, but you said ever. Did I say ever? Yes. I did. didn't mean ever. Okay. That's insane. I meant of the decade. Is there anyone on the list that is not Robbie Brady? No, there's. A, it's a list of it's one. Just Robbie Brady. Yeah. <laughs> so that wasn't even a list. That was just you wanted to talk about Robbie Brady for a bit. <laughs> no, Again. it's not a list. It's just he's the most underrated player of the decade. I challenge anyone to suggest a player that is more underrated than Robbie Brady of the decade. Of you the will decade. struggle. There aren't that many because, okay, in all seriousness, sure, it's Robbie Brady. But he is pretty high up there in, in terms of underrated players. He was always, even you know, when he was at Hull, when he was at Norwich, he was always the game changer on the pitch. He could always score a goal out of nowhere. He was always better than the players around him. For some reason, he couldn't make it work at, uh, at bigger clubs. But um, there's just something about him. Am I, am I limited to the Premier League for this? Yep. So it's not, it's just, just English football. Yep. Uh, okay. Um, it, it's not a bad shout like, it's hard, see? It is hard, but it, it's only hard because you don't really know what people rate. You could say someone you like was, Jamie Vardy. No, because I don't think he's underrated. I, I, think, I he's, think he's still underrated. I mean, I don't know. It goes back to what we said earlier. I think that he does this, he does one thing really, really, really well. And I think everyone's really, really appreciates what that is. But okay. I don't know whether, I don't know whether that makes him underrated. I would say that uh, you could make a case for, a couple of Burnley players. Someone like Ashley Barnes is underrated. Yeah. You know, people think of him as just a sort of a lump. Well, go back and look at his goals. Uninjured Danny Ings. Uninjured Danny Ings was a very, very good player. Um, I say there's a couple of players at Bournemouth who are very, very underrated. I think Josh King is extremely underrated. Yeah. Uh, um, Didn't think, Josh King also come from Man United's Academy? Yeah, via Blackburn. 
Right, okay. I think he went off there for a little bit. But yeah, he was originally at Man United. Yeah. Um, very, very good player. Um, maybe not in Robbie Brady territory, but still. <laughs> um, See, it's hard. It's hard. Hey, I'll tell, tell you who looks very underrated now. Decent Tadic. Right, yeah, but he's not in the Premier League anymore. No, but he was a very underrated Premier League player. Was he? Well, he went he, from I don't know being, if he was underrated when he was in the Premier League. Well, evidently so. He was underrated by the club. I mean, they you know, sold him for a cheap fee back to uh, off back to the Eredivisie and he was on the Ballon d'Or long list, yeah. which is a, an incredible thing to say, actually. But, you know. Dusan Tadic, yeah. Ballon d'Or. Yeah. Right, well, let's look. I've given you five minutes there and you can't think of anyone who, who is, who is, yeah, an, outright, like was actually who is little, an outright hang on, hang on, easy hang name to suggest, like an easy win. This is nothing but a dirty lawyer's trick because whilst I, I was within the boundaries of the assignment here, trying to create my own little list of... You're a football journalist. You, You've already been to 25 stadiums this year. <laughs> right? 25 games. 25 games this year. Yeah. You can't, off the top of your head, in five minutes, come yeah. up with a name over the last 10 years in the Premier League of a player who is more underrated than Robbie Brady. Yeah. You see, you might. It's, it's not the player I struggle with. It's the concept of what is underrated. What about Charles and Zobbia? No. He was because great. Wrong decade. No, it wasn't. Uh, was it really? Yeah, 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 yeah. God, that makes me feel really it old now. I mean, he played in this decade, but he began before. When did he score those three I would, goals? I, would argue, I, I could make a case for Moussa Dembele being underrated because I feel like people who didn't get the chance to watch him in person don't really know what he was and what a what a spectacle of a footballer he was. Not as much as Robbie Brady. Right, that's the end now. And your I'll, eyes, I'll welcome it's, comments. It's creepy because your eyes sort of, your, your eyes go to this weird little place when you talk about Robbie Brady. I'll welcome comments. Uh, I don't think you should welcome comments. No, no, you should. If you, if you can think of a player. I think you should turn comments <laughs> off for this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> you don't welcome comments about this. If you can think of a player who is more underrated than Robbie Brady in the last 10 years of the Premier League, just leave us a comment. Anyway, listen, one more thing before you go. Your favourite video, I mean, it's of the decade. We've not been, we weren't going in 2009. So, uh, what is your favourite video, TIFO video, basically? One of the most interesting, I think, is um, is Matez on uh, Why Barcelona Can't Fill Camp Now. That's also our biggest video. It is, but I think it, it deserves to be, because it's very, very interesting. Um, and um, I was actually, uh, I, we rewatched it this morning, and I had a little dig around for, for Barcelona's attendance statistics, and it's getting worse. So it was not only very interesting, but it's also very pertinent, and Barcelona have... Uh, 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 early in the year, they announced a delay to their um, their renovation project. So it's going to become relevant. It's going to continue to be relevant for a few years yet. I think mm -hmm. it won't be complete until twenty twenty four. Right. When it will, you know, basically going to change the shell of the stadium really? to make it. Yeah, it's it's very interesting. People um, people haven't seen. Go and look at the, some of the concepts. Oh, very okay. interesting. Uh, my, do you know what mine is? Mine is. Is it Alex Roseberg? No, that's the one that Seb wrote, which really didn't do very well. No one watched. No one watched that one. You should go and find it. Mine is James Montague's uh, script on when Iraq won the uh, Asian... Uh, oh, it's brilliant. That. The AFC yeah. in 2007. Oh, I love it. I would actually... I mean, there, there are a couple that were in this this conversation because we've, we've done a few different things um, with uh, some very talented illustrators recently um, about stories. Um, so if you can find the one about the uh, the Stasi in yeah. East Germany, I think that's brilliant. I, I know it's not ever going to be hugely popular, but it's a brilliant script, brilliantly illustrated. That was an athletic script. It is. It's by uh, written by Rafa Honigstein. Rafa Honigstein. Um, it's really good. 
Uh, but some of those things, some of the um, story about the uh, the refugee who comes to England um, to watch Arsenal. Yeah, that's I can't remember how we titled that one, but uh, mm, can't remember either. I really enjoyed that. Sam France did a good one on John Thompson. Yes, he did. I the, really the very that's sad a, story. It's a very boring name of a person, John Thompson. No offense to any Johns or any Thompsons, but uh, the the name you know hides a very interesting story. It's a it's a very sad story too for not just. John Thompson and his family, but uh, you know the people affected by the incident. Um, but yeah, do do find that one. And it's mm. Thompson without a P if you're trying to Google it. Yeah. Uh, all right, that's the end now. Uh, so thanks for listening, and uh, hope you've all had a merry holiday time and enjoy a new year that is a new and a year. Traditionally, you just go with Happy Christmas. Goodbye. positively impact our communities throughout the country. What do you think a private Christian education looks like? Grand Canyon University offers over 175 high-quality online programs across nine colleges. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu.